Hello and welcome to another episode of the Richards Report. I'm Ted Richards. This episode, I have an extra special guest. I'm speaking with Senator Jane Hume, the Assistant Minister for Superannuation, Financial Services and Financial Technology, commonly referred to as FinTech. There's certainly a lot going on in the financial world right now, and we could do a whole series on how it's affecting different parts of the economy. But Jane is a very busy person, so the conversation with Senator Hume will focus on her three portfolios, financial services, fintech, and super. As always, the usual disclaimers. This episode does not qualify as financial advice and is just for informational and educational purposes only, and people may hold positions in the companies discussed. There's a lot of moving parts in the world right now, especially in Victoria, where Jane and I are both based, so I thought I'd provide a bit of a timestamp. This episode was recorded on the 4th of August, 2020, and show notes for the episode will be available on the Six Park website, sixpark.com.au. It's a fascinating discussion, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So with no further ado, my name is Ted Richards. You're listening to The Richards Report, and here is my discussion with Senator Jane Hume. You're listening to The Richards Report, where we will speak with investment experts from around the country. We will cut through the jargon to allow you to make more insightful investment decisions for your future. This is The Richards Report. Jane, welcome to the Richards Report. It's terrific to be with you, Ted. Well, thanks for taking the time and your busy schedule for this chat. And due to COVID, we're recording through Zoom. So for people listening in, where are you located right now? Uh, right now, I'm sitting in my office in Richmond, which is uh, only a few kilometres away from where I live. Thank heavens for that. Because obviously, our movement is very limited at the moment. So we're running very much on skeleton staff, lots of working from home rosters. But... You know, it's going to be a tough six weeks, but we're a resilient bunch, us Victorians, so we'll get through it. Yes, and I, I should provide a bit of a timestamp because people do listen into this uh, you know, months, possibly years after we record it. It is the 4th of August, and uh, for Victorians like you and I, it's, it's rich, Richmond in Victoria as opposed to, say, Richmond in New South Wales. We had the recent restrictions come in in the last uh, 48 hours where we stepped up to um, uh, stage four. So just to provide a bit of context there for listeners, Jane, at the start of the year, when we go back, what, six, seven months ago, I'm sure you were focused in on the big plans for each of your three portfolios, such as the uh, continuing to implement changes in the wake of the Royal Commission and the the upcoming launch of open banking, well, and throwing a lot of flights probably around the country too, but then COVID hits. How's the last six months been for you as a politician? Yeah, look, you're right, Ted. It's been very interesting. I, I saw this fantastic, uh, you know, meme today that said, "I think we can safely say to all of those who said in in 2015, where do you think you'll be in five years' time?" They were wrong. Uh, but that more so, I think, from from my perspective, if you, you know, think about just the very beginning of 2020, economically, we were in such a a different space, you know. Uh, we uh, were um, we had unemployment of around five point one percent, and maybe I'm showing my age, but uh, you know, when I was at university, five percent unemployment was considered full employment, and we had really high levels of participation rate in the workforce, particularly from women and from young people. We had some of the lowest levels of welfare dependency that we'd seen in three decades. And uh, we had AAA credit ratings and we were, you know, staring down the barrel of a 
of a balanced budget for the first time in 11 years. So it was a pretty good space come, you know, just six months later. And it's a very, very different time indeed. At the beginning of the year, before the COVID pandemic really kicked in, we were looking at things like um, implementing the recommendations of the Banking Royal Commission, uh, getting ready to launch the consumer data right, and, uh, and making some, some quite significant changes in the superannuation sphere. So that really covers almost all aspects of my portfolio. A lot of that is still going on. You know, the work is being done behind the scenes and, and continues, but of course there has been significant disruption as well. You'll know that in March this year, we did a, um, uh, you know, three tranches of economic support for uh, in response to COVID-19. And that was the equivalent of putting together about three budgets in the space of five weeks. It was an enormous task for the Treasury portfolios. I'm sure, no doubt, some uh, hectic times. Jane, you've got your um, three portfolios that we're going to talk about. So let's start off by um, uh, zooming in on those. Um, financial services, uh, fintech and superannuation. Let's start off with financial services. What does that portfolio include? Well, as I said at the very beginning, my focus at the moment is implementing the Hain Royal Commission recommendations. But the portfolio, that part of the portfolio more broadly, is all about restoring and ensuring uh, trust and confidence in Australia's financial sector. You know, Australia has a really strong financial system, always has. It's very prudentially, very sound. And, and that really was one of the things that saw us through the GFC in particular. And again, I think in this COVID pandemic period of time, we've, we've seen the financial services sector you know really step up in response to the crisis to work in conjunction hand in hand with government doing things like deferring loan payments or restructuring finances from the banks the insurance companies have ensured that there's pandemic uh, cover for a number of their uh, of their insured um, and making sure that benefits continue even if people have been laid off work and for the superannuation firms of course they've stepped up with the early release of super scheme and made sure that superannuation funds that people have accessed get into their hands very, very quickly. So a lot of uh, the, you know, the coordination of the financial services system working in hand in hand with government, I think is one of the great strengths of, uh, of the system. Um, uh, I, I could go on and on if you would like me to come. No, no, that's, that's fine. I might, I might um, jump in on, on the item that you mentioned there at the beginning and the, the Hain Royal Commission. And a lot of that was about the advice industry. My background is in this area and in this podcast, we, we mostly speak about investing and, and advice and the like. So probably best we kind of jump in sure. there. There's always been an amount of people in Australia, that a level of people that get financial advice and those that don't. But what we're now seeing is this growing portion of people that are kind of in the middle. They want a level of help, but they probably can't afford it. Some refer to this as the advice gap. And this is probably actually growing the amount of people in there. What are some of the problems with the current model? So you're right. My background is uh, also in financial advice as well. I used to work for the National Australia Bank when it established its financial advice um, back in the 1990s. And it's an industry I feel particularly passionate about. But it has, is also an industry that's gone through an awful lot of change in the last uh, you know, 30 years or so, particularly with the introduction of compulsory superannuation. Compulsory superannuation has, has you know, served Australians very well, but it is complex and there aren't a lot of people that understand it. And particularly navigating that period of time 
at retirement is really important, but make sure you, you know, work up to it and then use your funds effectively in retirement as well. And that's where financial advice, I think, can be so very important. We know that um, I think it's around 27% or so of Australians have received some form of financial advice in the past, but According to ASIC, it's around 12% that received it in the last 12 months. You can imagine how that demand for good quality, professional, uh, independent financial advice is now, uh, particularly now that we're you know, facing a pandemic, people are very uncertain about their financial futures. They want to immerse themselves into their uh, personal balance sheet to understand what it is that they need to do, what it is that they can change to make themselves more financially resilient and better off in the future. In some of my um, research, you've uh, noted on a couple of solutions that could could help solve people. And the first is single topic advice. Could you provide a bit more colour as to how single topic scaled advice that can help people? Yeah, so single issue advice, I think, is really important. Obviously, when you go to see a financial advisor uh, and you want to do a, you know, a full holistic plan, well, that's a really powerful tool. I know I've got one myself. In fact, it's sitting in front of my desk, in front of me on my desk right now, ready for me to sign sign the documents. I've really valued the advice that I've had from my financial advisor. Um, he's really seen me through some interesting times too. But occasionally there is a, a, you know, one single issue advice that you need that you don't want to go through the whole rigmarole of getting a full financial plan. It's costly and it's time consuming. But for something like the early release of superannuation, we spoke to the regulators, we said, what can we do for, for people that might want advice on just this one issue? And, uh, and they have relaxed some of the, um, the compliance requirements around single issue advice temporarily, uh, making sure that people can act, get advice on early release of superannuation without being charged too much and also using only a, 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 a uh, rather than a, you know, a full statement of advice, just you know, a limited limited notification, which I think is uh, far, it's, it's actually a really good um, uh, you know, crash test dummy for the future. We're testing this out to see whether it can work because I think that there's great opportunities in the future. Things like, should I be salary sacrificing uh, into my superannuation? Should I be paying off more on my mortgage than I am into superannuation? Those are single issues and they come without a product recommendation at the end. I think that there are opportunities there to do this better. They, they certainly solve that affordability problem that many have. Um, another solution is technology and, and how tech-enabled solutions can, can lower costs and in, in importantly in a compliant way. Do you see technology as also being a solution for, for people that might be in this advice gap Absolutely. You know, we speak about robo advice, but in this uh, in, in this very sort of general way, there's so many different forms of advice that uh, can be accessed through technology, whether it be uh, you know the technology that sits on a financial advisor's desk that helps him make the judgments that he needs to make, or she may make the judgments that she needs to make, I should say, um, or, or whether it is you know a, a, a full solution uh, and and everything in between. Uh, and I think this is a really exciting area. What we want to make sure is 
is that you know our regulatory system is um, flexible enough to allow for uh, robo advice solution or technological advice solutions to you know to thrive and to flourish so that we can access all those people that do need uh, that have unmet financial advice needs but at the same time we want to ensure that the consumer protections are there i think we've learned the lessons of the past that poor advice can lead to really disastrous outcomes for consumers so it's just finding that right balance now yeah the, the term robo advice is obviously close to home for me and the term is a bit of a misnomer which in when people hear the term robo advice they imagine these these cyborgs and these futuristic things but there's actually more often than not a, a real human overlay behind these that overseeing the algorithms and etc which um can provide level uh, people with a with a level of comfort and confidence in terms of the, the problem that it's solving. That's exactly right. I mean, and, and of course, one of the other things too is that robo advice doesn't necessarily replace human judgment. Too, I heard this amazing story at the Singapore fintech festival about um, the use of um, artificial intelligence AI in in uh, lending decisions, and there was a couple, you know, a, a fellow that. Um, was a, a multi-millionaire who went to apply for a pretty basic loan as his wife did, and his wife did exactly the same so they were even you know level playing field same income uh, same circumstances and the amount that she was approved for was significantly less than the amount that her husband was approved for now that is artificial intelligence doing what it should do it actually um, you know sifted out a risk factor <gasps> gender was a risk factor i mean that's outrageous so you know, there are some um, positive biases, I suppose, that we want to see um, in in our technological solutions that that maybe AI is you know doesn't provide yet, and we need that human judgment to override it. So it's a really interesting. It's a fine balance, and uh, you know, I tip my hat to those like you, Ted, that work in this technological space and the work that you do, because it is really important to to you know to make sure that advice is accessible, but also that it's appropriate. I actually keep an eye on that that Singapore fintech scene. It's it's quite an um, an interesting little area and also other parts of the world it's quite interesting how it's not so much a human or a robo and a binary solution one or the other but what we're seeing around the world is it's the best solution when you're getting the best of both to provide different services for different people and i might actually get to this sh shortly because we're seeing that occur in the us the uk and canada where some banks are working with some digital solutions not so much here yet in Australia. And I was, I was wondering, is that a bit to do with probably our very concentrated banking system that we have here? Well, think? potentially that may be so. Um, you know, the banking and financial services more generally has seemed to be a little bit of a closed shop in the past. But, uh, and this is almost like a Dorothy Dix attend, um, I do think that that is all about to change with the introduction of the consumer data, right, which is going to be a really important piece of infrastructure that will allow the fintech community to really, uh, you know, flourish in Australia and, uh, and leverage the information that comes from the consumer data. Let's have a chat about open banking, um, which was officially about a month ago. I, I believe you launched it about a month ago. There's a few ways fintechs can work with providers in the uh, with open banking. Most commonly, it's integrating with incumbents via APIs. And for those not familiar with that acronym, an API is an application programming interface, which very simplistically provide a software or a program so um, uh, they can work and message each other. 
Jane, can you provide a bit of information as to what open banking can mean for Australians? Yep. So essentially, open banking means that um, uh, consumers can access their own data from uh, from banks and from providers and, and share that data with somebody else, with, with an accredited provider um, of, of a financial service. Um, you know, it puts the consumer at the centre of the decision. Banks have an awful lot of information about us. It's not just our name and our email address and you know, whether we have a home loan. It's how we pay our home loan. It's how often we pay our credit cards. It's you know, how often we get paid from our salaries, whether we have any other forms of income coming in and what the timings of all of that are our consumer habits, that is your information. And when we put the consumer at the centre of that and allow them to share that data, they get to access better products that are tailored for them, that suit their needs. And of course, right now, there is really no better time to empower consumers to do just that. You know, we know that uh, the vast majority of people know in their heads, theoretically, that if they switched their home loans, they could save thousands of dollars. In fact, I think on average, it's it's around $2,000 a year, which is extraordinary. And if and no, it's, I'm sorry, forgive me, it's $1,000 a year. And if they switch their credit cards, they could save $200 a year, but they don't because of that hassle factor. The CDR um, and open banking reduces that hassle factor and makes products proliferate out there um, and, and makes them far more available to the consumer and makes switching between products so much easier. So it will actually increase competition and bring down the cost of financial services in Australia. So that's a terrific deal for consumers. But wait, there's more, it's like <laughs> steak knives. So um, uh, uh, the consumer data right doesn't just apply to banking in Australia. That is the first cab off the rank, the first industry cab off the rank. But we will actually be the first country in the world to, uh, to, to create a consumer data right that goes beyond financial services to energy, to telecommunications, potentially to insurance and superannuation as well. All of those, dare I say, grudge purchases, all of those things that sit at the back of the filing cabinet because it's too hard to switch between providers. The information is, is too difficult to decipher. Well, this will make uh, comparison apps so much more meaningful and it will actually allow a, a better proliferation of, of tailored products out there that will benefit the consumer. There's a lot that I want to, I want to speak to there because, it, like you said, Jane, it is incredibly exciting I do want to mention that I, th I do wonder if social media can be applied to this in that through open banking or some form of infrastructure like that, you can actually uh, get your data back from a social media platform if, you, if you're not comfortable with that. But that's, a, that's another episode for another time. That's an interesting uh, one. Yeah, we're getting yeah. a little Cambridge Analytica on me there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> but that, but, um, actually, but that's, you, you pick up a really important issue though there, Ted, because one of the things that we want to ensure with the consumer data, right, is that consumers are confident um, yep. taking that information and sharing that information with accredited third, with, um, you know, third-party providers. And there are actually increased levels of privacy, levels of privacy that we've never seen before applied to this industry that uh, apply to the consumer data right. We know that this is going to be a slow burn. It will take uh, consumers a while to catch on to the benefits. However, as we've seen in the UK, open banking has been very successful over there. It took a while to start off, but now it's very successful and we think it will do the same here. In my mind, it's a little bit like the difference between using a Nokia flip phone and a smartphone. You know, 15 years ago, we were using a Nokia flip phone and we went, this is fantastic. Look at texts and it makes calls. That's all we ever need. Who would have thought now you could never survive without a smartphone and all that it provides. And that's what open banking and consumer data rights going to be. It's going to be the smartphone of banking, of telecommunications, of energy. It's going to be a very exciting time. 
I'm, I'm viewing this from a bank's point of view, especially one of the big four. Surely they weren't too happy about this competition that they've never experienced before. I know that about two-fifths of people never change banks in their life. I guess these big banks have so many more people that they're competing with. Well, yes and no. I think that, you know, at, at first blush, you would have thought that the banks would be very reluctant to do this. But they also have their eyes on the prize too. They know that if they can, that, you know, they have a lot of capital behind them, they can invest in technology, they can provide the nimble uh, solutions that consumers are looking for as well. Uh, so I think that they they too could see the opportunity to, uh, to a- appeal to clients that, uh, might have stuck with another one of the big four um, and allows that switching between the big banks as well as the next tier down and also the new fintechs that can come into the market as well. So, th- I mean, I think it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking at this in so many different ways and one of which is with a lot of the banks retreating and getting out of any form of wealth or advice, it's going to be interesting to see solutions that they may provide in this space or, or emerging fintechs can can work with them. But that's another story for another episode. Um, I recently refinanced my mortgage. and Congratulations. Thanks. It wasn't a pleasant process. Um, uh, And I I couldn't get over the questions that they were asking me, things like, um, how much do I spend on on groceries? And, And I was like, I'm pretty sure you've got this information. You should be able to uh, to work it out much better than I can in terms of giving you some form of number. So these, like you said, these budgeting apps like um, Frollo, Neo Banks, like Up, Robo Advisors. It, it's it's going to be a fascinating time for how these these um, fintechs can integrate with um, these traditional solutions. Well, that's right. And, you know, the fintech community in Australia, the ecosystem here is a really a thriving and flourishing one. You know, Australians are almost 100% banked and that makes us a very interesting market for uh, overseas companies that want to bring their, their product here. Uh, but more importantly, we're actually a pretty fussy um, you know, we, we, we're digitally, digitally literate for the most part and, uh, and, and we're quite fussy consumers. You've got to have more than just a sexy looking app in order to impress an Australian consumer. So, uh, uh, so we actually are doing some fantastic creation work here and product development work, but we're also bringing in the best from overseas as well. Exciting times. And it's, it's one thing for government and, and politicians to provide the, uh, the framework fintechs to create it and um, come up with these solutions, but it also relies on the end user to get off their bum and make the move. Well, that is true. But to some extent, if you build it, they will come. You know, uh, to use the Kevin Costner movie line, uh, from a government's perspective with the fintech, uh, with the fintech space, you know, what I would like to see is us, you know, building the right framework around around the industry, making sure that we have the infrastructure like the CDR, like the new payments platform that, you know, the RBA consortium have put together to allow instantaneous payments and enhancing both of those to do things like allow for right access, which will, you know, again, that could, you know, really change the dynamic of the way that businesses interact with consumers and, and, and vice versa. Then making sure that we have the regulatory environment, right? Things like um, we have a, a sandbox at ASIC that begins on the 1st of September that allows fintechs to come in and test their product offering and make sure that they have a sound business model before they go through the rigmarole of getting licenses. We want to make sure that there are investment opportunities, that capital is is available, which is why we've changed um, early stage 
venture capital rules and crowdsource funding rules to allow for new sources of capital to be available to fintechs and also opportunities overseas and, and domestically as well. So things like the Australia-UK Fintech Bridge, which allows you know, alignment I'd like to say regulatory alignment, we're not quite there yet, but between the UK and Australia to you know, allow some seamless transition as far as possible for Australian companies to set up in the UK, which have a, a much bigger market, and UK companies to set up in Australia, which has a more sophisticated market. And both, you know, potentially to be used as a, as a, a Australia to be used as a launching pad uh, for Asian uh, fintech communities to come here and test their product because we, we do replicate Northern American and Northern European markets, but just on a smaller scale. So there's some really exciting opportunities ahead, I think, in that space. Jane, you mentioned uh, Build It, They Will Come. I think that was a Kevin Costa baseball movie, Field of Dreams, maybe. Well, I'll, I'm going to quote another... <laughs> Showing my age. <laughs> well, I don't mind that movie. So um, I'm going to quote another baseball movie, uh, possibly related to fintech and incumbents, and that is uh, Brad Pitt's quote in the movie Moneyball, Adapt or Die, which I feel like is a um, um, very, very relevant to right now in terms of what the industries are going through. I'm so glad you said it was Brad Pitt and Moneyball and Adapt or Die. I was waiting for you to say Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire, show me the money. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. no. Um, Moving on. Um, now, um, I'm fasc- as much as I'm fascinated by fintech and how it can help people and, and some of the great solutions out there, we could speak about this for much longer, but um, in the interest of time, let's move on to one of your other portfolios and that's superannuation because it's, it's very important too. Jane, you did touch on this at the beginning of our conversation, the Australian super system as a whole, it is fantastic for people, for helping people fund their retirement. What we have is a bit of the envy of the world, but at the same time, it's not perfect. Is there anything that you'd like to see change? How long have we got on this podcast, Ted? <laughs> Look, uh, I've, got, I've, I've got time. <laughs> Look, you're absolutely right. I think Australia's superannuation system is something that we should be very proud of. It's now reached nearly $3 trillion in size, and that is bigger than the ASX. It's bigger than GDP. You know, it is quite extraordinary. Um, and it is a testament to uh, the origins and the operations of that system. And it does provide an awful lot of opportunities. Certainly more Australians today are retiring with more money than they ever have before. But at the same time, it is an imperfect system. And we did have a report from the Productivity Commission that came out uh, the beginning of last year, I think it was, beginning of 2019, that said uh, exactly that, that even though it was a great system and something that we should be proud of, uh, that the fees were still way too high, particularly on a globally relative basis, uh, that there were insurances that were being applied or paid for uh, by members of super funds that they I, I didn't know that they have or didn't necessarily need or want um, that were eroding their balances unnecessarily and that weren't providing value for money when they actually did go to make a claim. Uh, there was also a, 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 it's an enormous, it's, very, it's like the opposite of the banking system. There are so many superannuation funds out there that we are spoiled for choice. But the problem is because it's a complex system, because of the way that the industrial relations system works, people get stuck in, uh, in a superannuation fund and they never leave. And if that fund is underperforming, and there are a number of them that are persistent underperformers, it can cost them thousands in retirement, thousands and thousands of Sorry dollars. to interrupt. Um, this is commonly referred to as the loyalty tax. 
Oh, well, no, not necessarily. Not no. necessarily. I mean, it is a form of loyalty tax, I think, but um, loyalty really doesn't come into it if you can't leave. You know, loyalty is something that you do by choice. So, uh, uh, but because of the, because of the links to the industrial relations system, if you push a trolley at Coles um, and you also wait a table at night, you could be forced to go into two separate. Uh, superannuation funds just because of your award your, your enterprise agreements that that's what, something that we're desperately trying to change right now because that's creating the greatest inefficiency of all which is duplicate accounts people have numerous accounts out there uh, they're all being charged fees they're all being charged uh, for you know insurance premiums and and that's eroding retirement balances so that's how we're trying to adjust the system right now it actually most of it is a reflection of the fact that superannuation came out of the of um, of the industrial relations system the industrial relations movement and I, you know i'm i actually think that that's something that we should be proud of it's a system that has served us really well for about 28 years but it's not perfect we now need to adjust it to have a system that's going to reflect the workplaces of today and of the next 30 years yeah i i didn't actually mean the loyalty tax um in in that example but it, it's it's a, it's demonstrating the power of defaults we are lazy and that uh, default options can be powerful when it comes to uh, making decisions and- Particularly many... complex decisions. Yes, yes. And the other item that you touched on is insurance. It's very well known, uh, the problem and what super can do for retirement. What is less well known is the insurance component within that. And it, it's equally important. So I suggest people not just look at their superannuation provider, but also the insurance component within it and it's um, how relevant that is to your circumstance. It is very, very important to make sure that you're not paying for insurances that you don't want, that you don't need and that you can't claim on. But insurance is, uh, if you're over 25 in Australia, insurance is opt out, not opt in. And we want to make sure that everybody takes that decision into account, not just the advertising of their fund, whether their fund is related to their particular sector that they work in, um, or, you know, or, or, or you know, past investment performance even. I mean, there, there are lots of good ways to judge a fund. There's lots of information out there. But wherever you can, we'd suggest that you get advice to make sure that whatever your choice is, it's tailored to you. Of course. And as I mentioned in the intro, um, this is not personal advice. This is just for informational and educational purposes only. Jane, I'm conscious of time. Before we go, in my research, I came across, do you actually have two, two super funds? Can you provide people with a bit of background as to why you've got the super funds? Yes, absolutely. Uh, look, I do have two super funds, even though I, I tell other people that it's highly inefficient to do so. That's a sacrifice I'm willing to make because um, I, I like to be able to compare my uh, my retail uh, offering, which I have um, through a financial advisor and the performance that I get from those uh, you know, quite tailored investment choices uh, to a, a, you know, a very basic um, industry superannuation fund uh, because if I'm going to talk about both I think that I should experience both and um, and I don't want you know there seems to be uh, such a sort of an ideological divide in superannuation that I've never found I, I've always found bewildering you know industry funds don't like retail funds retail funds don't like industry funds uh, both of them hate self-managed super uh, and somehow that you know the corporate funds seem like dinosaurs of the past but actually they've served people very well um, and of course, the public sector funds just hide and you know, hope nobody notices them because they're doing so well in the background. So it, you know, it, it, is, it is a very um, you know, uh, um, 
uh, siloed siloed industry. But I, I think that the most important thing is because it is such an important industry and it, it affects every single Australian, it is really important to, to get it right, to make sure that there is a home for uh, you know, everybody's uh, choice of superannuation and choice is really important. It is the ultimate corollary of a, uh, of a compulsory system. If we're going to require that nearly $1 in 10 of everything that you earn gets put away for your retirement, well, there should be choice out there for Australians to be able to find the product that best suits them. Well, Jane, so you've got this two-horse race uh, with your two super funds. I'd like to add a third horse to this race. And whilst we may not be a super fund, I think you need to add a robo-advisor like Six Park to this race too. Um, I just, I think, to provide a bit more diversity. But that's, once again, that's another discussion for another time. (laughs) I'll tell you what, if I actually test, uh, now was the crash test dummy for every terrific product that I found through the fintech portfolio, I'd just be my my register of interests that I have to submit to the prime minister each year would be overwhelming because there's so many good products out there. But I do know that Six Park does a terrific job in your space. Well, um, COVID is bringing forward years of behaviour change into a, into a matter of months, Jane, and no doubt this is affecting all of your portfolios. Do you feel at some point in the future? People will look back at these times, not just for COVID and how it affected people's lives and the the economy, etc., but for how much change and disruption was squeezed into such a short period of time. Yes, I think that they will. You know, I was telling my 16-year-old son just a couple of nights ago that uh, you know when I finished university, I walked out into a recession, and uh, you know, even though I had my little commerce degree tucked under my arms and nothing but a ponytail and a dream, I found it really hard to get meaningful work at that stage. And it was quite, um, uh, you know, character defining for me, that period of time. And I promised myself that I would um, do everything in my power to ensure that my children didn't experience that. And of course, you know, the three of them, I think probably will. One's at university now, one's about to finish do his last year of school, and another one is still working her way through high school. So, um, so, so that is, you know, I think that is quite, um, as I said, character defining. Uh, at the same time, though, uh, necessity is always the mother of invention. And look at us now, you and me doing a podcast with a, with a video recording. Um, I've already had two television interviews this morning and uh, and three meetings and i haven't left my desk that's quite extraordinary so we know we are adapting things are going to be done differently from now on will we need as much overseas travel i i I don't know Um, what i am looking forward to ted though and i'm very glad that we get to do this over video conference is the removal of the masks so we get to see people smile again i do miss people seeing people smile on the street yeah when you when you've only got eyes to work off it it's very hard to interact with people um, it does shut off a lot of emotions okay jane in the interest of time i might wrap it up there if someone would like to keep up to date with what you're doing um, where can they find you on social media i i should say i follow you on twitter ah very good uh, well i'm glad you followed me on twitter uh that's uh that's a terrific space look um i'm on twitter i'm, I'm on facebook and there's a, probably a lot more information there you're on, and instagram, I'm on too? instagram as well oh look i'm ubiquitous i'm everywhere um uh, uh so and i also have a you know a, a website as well um or you could just call the office and have a chat. <laughs> well, Jane, I just had a quick uh, glance of my notes and I realised I haven't had the opportunity to speak with you about the Saints because uh, <laughs> you've got this busy year and the Saints are having an incredible year and you're not even going to be able to see them in person. 
Maybe they do well in, in warmer climates. <laughs> it, is, it is terribly frustrating. You know, uh, one of the saddest things that has happened to me this year was that um, my dad passed away in March. Just He actually passed away on the day that um, we announced that you could only have uh, 10 people at a funeral. And, you know, he was a larger-than-life character and, and was my hero and, and my greatest fan. But he was also a mad, one-eyed Saints supporter. And I know that I, you know, that I wish that he were here so that he could watch them do so well. Um, but the season's not over yet. So, uh, yeah, we'll keep our, my fingers and, and toes across. I'm cheering them on from a distance. Well, Swans, we're kind of struggling and, and part of me has kind of got one leg on the Saints bandwagon. I, I grew up not far from Moorabbin and, and went to a lot of football at Moorabbin and, and watched Tony Lockett play there. So uh, despite never being a Saints fan, I um, I can empathise for uh, the years um, and the lack of success that you've had. So um, who, who knows what this year could be? Um. <laughs> Jane, it's been an absolute privilege. Thank you so much for taking the time in your very busy schedule to chat on the Richards Report. That's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, that's it for me. If you like this episode, make sure you share it with a friend. And Jane, this includes you. So uh, Scott Morrison, Josh Frydenberg, uh, send them a link. See you next time on The Richards Report. Bye.